Mark Settle is a seven-time CIO and one of the most respected and experienced IT leaders in the industry. He is also the author of the book, From the Valley, a practical primer on the future of IT management. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Mark sits down to discuss his latest book and identifies some of the key characteristics that separate Silicon Valley startups from their peers. Enjoy this discussion. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. We are joined by multi-time guest, seven-time CIO, author, and friend of the CIO everywhere. Mark, what's going on? Ian, it's wonderful to join you this afternoon. I've been looking forward to it. I have been looking forward to it as well. Uh, for our listeners who don't know who Mark is, you can head back into the uh, deep many episodes that we have in uh, IT Visionaries lore. There's We did an episode with uh, him. He's done a couple roundtables. So go check that out if you haven't. Uh, those are great episodes. Today, we are going to dive into your new book, Truth from the Valley, a practical primer on IT management for the next decade. So let's get started. Why'd you write the book? So during the last three years, I had an opportunity to work in the Valley in a startup company. And although I had worked in a variety of larger companies in the past, and I had had flirtations with the VC community here and some of the, you know, some of the companies that they invested in as either an informal advisor or an early adopter of some of these new technologies, I had a revolutionary personal experience by actually working in uh, such a firm. And the way IT is managed in these cloud-native companies here is so completely different from the ways in which IT is conventionally managed you know, in a well-established, say, say, Global 2000 or Fortune 500 company, that I really felt compelled to try to tell the story as kind of a preview of coming attractions for those CIOs that are in Atlanta and Norfolk and Chicago and, you know, Salt Lake City. And and I'm not suggesting that, you know, some of the phenomena that we deal with here isn't being experienced by folks elsewhere. But I think the breadth of the change or the, you know, the differences in the way IT is managed here in the Valley and the depth are, are just not really um, um, encountered in other places. So, so, you know, when the book is, the premise of the book is pretty simple. It's based completely on a quote from a Canadian science fiction writer, a guy named William Gibson, who said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And so the, the contention is that a lot of the IT management practices that are considered commonplace and routine here in Silicon Valley and it will eventually be adapted and adopted everywhere as kind of a standard way of doing business. So this is something we have talked about many times on the show. And, and I want to say kind of off the top of this, yes, this podcast and team is based predominantly here in the Bay Area. Yes, you know, our network of, of guests a lot of times are, you know, quote unquote, Silicon Valley startups and things like that and, and technology companies. But I want to be very clear that a, we're agnostic to wherever innovation is coming from. It could come from any quarter, corner of the globe. And B, the reason why 
I think that it's so interesting, some of these practices that are here is because of just how many companies that are technology companies are built here. So you just have this like influx of technology people yeah, on the product side, on in the marketing teams, in the in you know, every part of the organization. I think that there's just a surplus of really talented people. Whereas if you just take a traditional, you know, manufacturing company or retailer where the, major, the vast majority of the technology talent is only in the IT team, for example. So I think that there's so many different things and iterations. And then you just have so many different startups that build from scratch and have that opportunity to say, hey, you know, we can start with cloud native. We can do all these sort of things. Um, and the reason why I say that, we have tons of IT listeners around the globe uh, or CIOs or CTOs or technology leaders that listen to this show. And I think your book is the perfect like salient way to say, these are the lessons from the front lines of people that are uh, survival of the fittest, getting some really interesting lessons from the ground. So I'm excited to, to talk to you about it. I'm curious, like when you were researching this, what was the first thing that kind of was the aha moment for you? <laughs> That's really a great question. Um, I guess it really was the pervasiveness of the differences. And so the book is divided up into some sections on people, process, and technology. And there's nothing original about that. You know, every management consultant in the world thinks about change along those dimensions. But, you know, all too often, exactly to your point, when we talk about Silicon Valley people and we talk about cloud native company and cloud native operations, you kind of go right to uh, some of the technology implications. But just the talent management issues alone you know, that exist here are going to be experienced everywhere in the U.S. I mean, we could quote statistics till the cows come home about how our schools are just not turning out enough people with IT backgrounds or IT experience. You know, somehow industry has to take on the, the burden of converting a bunch of music majors and philosophy majors into IT people, which, you know, we've done in the past and we can continue to do that in the future. Um, but the competition for talent here, you know, is going to be experienced in a lot of markets that we don't even think about today, like Atlanta or Chicago or St. Louis. And that has incredible implications for uh, IT leaders. Just to beat this to death a little bit, I mean, one of the implications is you have to become a brand manager. I mean, you're going to have to compete and impress people why you're the employer of choice. And if you're resting on your laurels because you've got some brand recognition, you know, among the consumers of the world, because you're a Fortune 300 retailer or whatever, and mentality that a lot of millennials have, that's almost like a negative. You're going to have to overcome this idea that you're some big, bureaucratic, lethargic organization when you're trying to pitch to somebody coming right out of Carnegie Mellon, hey, we do some really cool technology things in, you know, XYZ company. So, so just to go down this road a little further, you know, so brand management is going to become important from a recruiting point of view. Recruiting is going to be an ongoing process. Way too many IT organizations are in this you know, um, jerky motion of waiting until they get budget dollars or somebody leaves, open a wreck and, you know, try to go chase a replacement or some kind of a new skill. And I think, you know, you can't afford to do that. You've got to have a, kind of a much more strategic view of the skill sets you're trying to move your organization towards as well as the ones you're trying to get rid of. And that really is the third tenet of people management that I really spent some time on in the book, which is talent debt. So, you know, IT people love to talk about technical debt. And they'd be the first to yeah. tell you, you know, what hardware's in the data center that I just would love to get the heck out of there. And like, what are these applications that need to be refactored or retired altogether, et cetera? 
but you don't hear people talk about, you know, oh yeah, by the way, I've got a third of my staff that that's all they do is maintain that old hardware and those antiquated applications. And yeah, that's not the path to the future. So, so anyway, the, you know, I think there's huge people management concerns and there's just not going to be enough new talent coming out. So everybody's going to walk into this box Canyon and look around and try to figure out, you know, what do I do next just to keep operations going over the long term? Well, and so, and we'll get into some of this stuff, but I, I think, um, you know, we recently had Bob, the CIO of uh, Juniper Networks on the show, and he was talking about how, and I forget the time horizon, I want to say it's like three years or four years or whatever it was. And he was like, we will be 100% cloud native on this date. Everyone get on board. Like, if you don't want to be here, if like whatever, then you know, so be it, but we will do that. And they made like the giant list of things that they need to kill. And they just, you know, picked him prod away at that, you know, over time. And then he's like, now at the end state, it was like, man, this is great. We finally kind of made it. You take that and compare that with a startup who doesn't have to reverse engineer anything. They just start from scratch and build that way. I mean, you're talking about, you know, I I always, uh, I love the analogy of, you can get everybody on a, you know, a giant cruise ship, but it's, you know, and it has a lot of advantages, but if that cruise ship was a hundred speedboats, you're going to be able to do things a lot faster. And I think it speaks to your point that you kind of discovered this because you worked at big companies as a CIO, and then you worked in startup as a CIO and you're like, huh, this feels really different. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, I mean, really different. You know, and you raise a good point there. When you've started in a cloud native world and culture and framework, um, you really can't appreciate, you know, the overhang, you know, the emotional and technical and cost overhang of a, a lot of legacy applications and really legacy way of doing things as well. You know, by the same token, people that are in those older companies that have a lot of those kind of legacy processes and technologies, you know, you can't be good at everything. Every CIO or IT leader needs to kind of look at how the state of the art of IT management has evolved here and make a calculated bet. Like, what do I need to get good at that will really have a business impact in my company? And it's not all of the above. You know, maybe in your world, rhetorical world, you know, security can be good enough. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be like some huge, highly staffed state of the art, cool new tools, you know, every quarter um, to maintain information about your supply chain or, you know, whatever. So you have no PII data whatsoever. You don't operate internationally. You know, maybe security is less of a concern. Um, And maybe in that kind of an environment, just moving to an all SaaS kind of application portfolio could be extremely leveraging uh, long-term and provide a a cool source of innovation to the company moving forward. So I think the book can be used as almost like a strategic planning guide to say, okay, here's the landscape. This is the way IT gets managed out there. What are the three or four places that I really want to place my bets as a leader of this organization? What are the skills I want to bring in? You know, what are the technical competencies and what are the internal processes, the way I run IT? I kind of need to reinvent for this brave new world. So I was talking to a uh, Fortune 50 IT leader that um, <laughs> we're talking about data tools because <laughs> data is such a huge deal right now, obviously. And, and he, I was listing him off and he's like, 
I, to be honest, I think we use them all. He's like, <laughs> I don't even know. Like, I think every one of those are, I am pretty sure we use all of those. And I've like, at least like eight different tools, right? And it's just like, that's sort of the the scope of the landscape right now. If you're that large of an organization where you're like, I, you have so many vendors, you have so many different ways of looking at things. And I think that they're in the middle of like trying to build out their security team and build out their like, like machine learning team and a few other things. But you just look at that and you're like the sprawl. And you could tell from his frustration that it's like, there's nobody, uh, there's no plank owner on this. Nobody, uh, nobody is actually helming any of those data decisions. And I don't think they have a CDO, but anyway, it's just, it's just, it speaks to that, like the proliferation of tools and resources and things that you can kind of just slap on and become a budget item. And like, who knows what's doing what. Yeah, and, you know, under the new rules of engagement between IT and the business, the business has authority and budget to go out and you know, buy things on their own, right? And put things in place yeah. on their own. And so, you know, I've, I do a lot of talking about this. You know, the days of command and control when IT was this, the master of the universe when it came to procuring and implementing new technology, that, those are things, that's a thing of the past. Now, I'm sure in many of your larger Fortune 500 um, companies, there still are some pretty rigid approval practices, <coughs> excuse me, and you know, this is this they haven't really maybe come to terms with the reality of what's going to happen next. Um, but in the cloud native firms that we're talking about here, it's not uncommon for a, a company with 2,500 FTEs to maybe, you know, be working with 800 different SaaS services of one type or another, some That's big, amazing. some small, you know, some in between. So I have a good friend over at Dropbox, Sylvie VAU, who's the CIO there, and she coined a term in this last couple of months that I've been plagiarizing as frequently as possible. Uh, and she refers to these large collections of SaaS applications as SaaS at scale. You know, there's a whole series of problems around managing the cost, administering these tools, and then securing the data that's moving, you know, among these various tools as well. And, you know, you Ian brought up the, the case of the, the person that was dealing with some of the data management tools, but that problem has proliferated across the entire company. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I want to like kind of needle into some of the quote unquote Silicon Valley way of this. And I, by the way, Silicon Valley is partly a, it's such, it's a loaded term at this point, but for the listener to think of it, it's not a, just the geographical region here. It's like high growth startup kind of DNA more than pure, like just companies in this one geographical location. And the reason why I say that, and I make that distinction is there are pros and cons to obviously the like dumb money into things and do certain things. But the idea is like, even at the company, even at these companies that like bloat as much as, you know, like throw money at certain things and raise too much and do all that, they're still leaner than everybody. It's like the, it's like the person who, um, you know, goes to the gym every single day uh, for two hours, but they also eat a bunch of McDonald's. It's like, no matter how much McDonald's they're eating, they're still way more in shape than everybody else, just because they're building from scratch on newer technology, and they are just a younger company. So you have these companies, these startups that, you know, are choosing making these decisions, and a lot of times early on, without a CIO, and then a CIO comes in, and can kind of just and I mean, you could speak to your experience here, 
Mark, but you just kind of come in and say, all right, well, we're going to, these eight things are great. And the rest of this stuff we're going to kill and we're going to focus on this. And you're like, I can't believe that was that easy. And I'm just curious, like when you, when you kind of go into that type of an arena, like what are those things? What are the things that those high growth Silicon Valley companies do that can outpace their peers? So it is a very different conversation than what I have been used to in the past. So I think a lot of standardization and rationalization initiatives that I've been associated with in bigger companies really are driven by cost considerations, you know, and the ability to save money. And in these firms that are smaller and more progressive and with the cost of labor, you know, becoming so high that if there's some kind of unique set of tools in that you and I find make us super productive and the expense is relatively modest, you know, does the CIO want to come in and expend some political capital taking away our video conferencing tool? And that's the problem that you have with this SaaS phenomena. There's a long tail of pretty small services that are being used by individual work groups or departments. And the cost isn't all that great on an individual basis. And the you know, the political capital that you're going to have to squander to be able to make some of these changes um, can be pretty high. And so, again, the concept I've been trying to advance in some recent conversations is this idea of stewardship. You don't really own everything anymore, but you do have some oversight responsibilities in terms of, you know, securing the portfolio uh, from an information security point of view, at least understanding what the costs are and, you know, how much money is being spent and how well it's being spent in terms of utilization, actually track kind of who's, you know, using what at the end of the day. And then proactively, you know, doing a better job of integrating these tools. And so this is, this is another kind of revolutionary concept, at least in, in my mind. There are so many application teams that I've been associated with in the past where it's all about building code, right, and, and building new enhancements that we can shingle on top of our ERP system. In the world we live in today, there's less and less code development and more and more SaaS application buying and really, all SaaS applications are just a bundle of APIs. And so really, the whole the business architecture that you're running up business operations on, really think of it more like a nest of APIs that are talking to each other. They just happen to be sitting on top of some code, right? But in, you know, we got to get off this code thing all the time because that's really not where the world is moving in the long term. Yeah, expand on that. I mean, what are, what are some like applications of that that you've seen? So, there, I mean, you have major platforms like NetSuite and um, Salesforce and, and Workday and um, tools like Boomi and MuleSoft. And so you use those MuleSoft and the Boomi and the Workado kind of tools to actually move data back and forth and exercise some of the, yeah. the logic that exists in these different platforms. I, I will admit to you, I've seen companies where literally some of the ops teams, they'll do a, an Excel spreadsheet dump out of one application and they send that you know, by email over to somebody else and in the other part of the organization, they're re-entering the data manually, right? Because they just haven't set wow. up the API connector. And this is what happens. And so each functional department will make an investment in integrating their tech stack. So, you know, HR may be sitting on 30 different applications that do everything from recruiting to performance management to incentive planning and you name it. Um, and if there's benefits to them in getting that stuff integrated, They'll hire the consultants or they'll use the professional services of the vendors to make that happen. But if moving data out of their stack into marketing or finance or you know, some other functional area would benefit the broader organization, 
I mean, they're supportive, but they're not going to waste their precious time and resources making that happen. You know, in IT, we always like to talk about the only two parts of a company that really understand end-to-end operations are IT and finance. And it's yep. time for us to like, you know, put our, put our effort where our mouth is and step up and really, you know, go and progress, uh, um, proactively look for these integration opportunities that'll lead to more cross-functional productivity and efficiency. So this is a great point, and I love this point because we've heard it multiple times on this show about, uh, like Atticus Tyson from Intuit was like, yeah, it's it's IT and finance that sees the whole company. Like where the money flows is finance and where the tools and technologies. And I would expand that to say, if you're the type of person who says like, you know, there's two there's two functions of a company, there's you know, selling stuff and making stuff, right? Yep. So if you're going to flow from those two pieces, like how the money travels back and forth is finance and how those two functions of a company are optimized is through technology. And if IT owns technology, then it's like the platform in which both of those functions sit. And like, I just, I think it's, I think it's so clear to me in all of the conversations we've had on this show that the head of technology, whatever you are, the CTO, the CIO, whatever you call yourself, that is the steward for technology. If, you know, the quote unquote, every company is going to be a technology company uh, or is now and you just don't know it yet. Um, If that is the case and you're the head of that function, you know, clearly you are focused on two experiences, the employee experience, how do we optimize the people who are making and servicing the product? And then the customer experience, the people who buy your things. And like, it seems so clear to me that the technology leader, and then in most companies now, what they do is they say, hey, the CTO is in charge of, you know, how the product and the technology comes to life. And then the CIO is in charge of like the employee experience. And it just seems like for the quote unquote startup there's just so much less bureaucracy and like so much less bloat because they're just younger companies that those two things are streamlined and you can have that type of clarity of organizational building a lot easier. Am I wrong on that? I mean, it just seems like that's the way it's going. So there are always nuances, <laughs> right? Ian? And so one of the nuances is you're, to some degree, you're trading one set of problems for a different set of problems. So the problems you're describing you know, are the bureaucratic ones of, of change in large organizations. Now, in smaller, faster-growing organizations, you start to outgrow your processes pretty quickly. And, you know, most of these um, startup companies try to sell into a small, medium-sized business market initially and then move into larger enterprises and everybody's competing to um, land customers that are like Fortune 200 customers or Fortune 100 customers, and they celebrate those kind of... Well, guess what? When you get up to servicing those kind of customers, they have, you know, global operations, multiple operating divisions, you know, a lot of complexity. And, you know, maybe the way that you um, provide your customer support or the way you do your pricing and quoting um, for large customers, it it all changes over time. And the same way that people in a larger company would get frustrated with, boy, it's really hard to change. People in a small company get frustrated because suddenly they realize, hey, we can't like bill Johnson and Johnson the same way that we build, you know, um, Mark's pharmacy <laughs> in Santa Clara, you know, over the last two years. I mean, these guys want an unbelievable amount of information about 
what they bought and who used it and when it was used. And, you know, we've just never prepared an invoice like this before. It's unbelievable what they want. But to them, to the big companies, that's just standard operating procedure. That's the way we do business, you know. That's why we're going to want to see um, your services invoice for us. So, so I think there's frustration at both ends. The chaos around constantly having to reinvent your processes and getting that right kind of tipping point. I talk about this in the book a little bit. I think everybody's familiar with the Lean Startup, um, the book that yeah. was published about you know, getting to an initial um, value proposition. And so the author, so his name is Reese. I can't remember, Eric Reese, I think it is. Yeah, Eric Reese. Yep. Um, talks about this minimum viable product concept, something that's good enough to get people to start you know, using it, and then you can build on that going forward. And so in the book, I plagiarized that and talked about a minimum viable process in the sense that if you're in a big firm, you've got to prune back, you know, all of the barnacles that have built up around all the one-time edge cases that a process encountered to get back to something that's, you know, satisfies 80% of the good without 100% of the bureaucracy. And if you're in a smaller company, you know, you've got to realize that, the, you know, what was the minimum viable process that we had that was productive for booking an order, you know, a year ago when we had 200 customers and they were all national is not going to work with 2000 customers 18 months later, a third of which are operating internationally. So. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the physical ways that I, 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 you see this manifested is like the executive briefing center, right? Yep. It's like, once you get to a certain point, you build an executive briefing center, you know, for those big deals. And it's like for a small startup, you'd like, why would I ever build a building that's empty, you know, 50% yep. of the time, you know, just so that, you know, we can bring in and, and win big deals. Like that doesn't seem like it makes sense at, at all to me. But then you realize that there's a reason why people build them. It's because they work. Um, and it helps you close these massive deals that have extreme levels of complexity. But again, like, well, where does IT, where is IT involved in that kind of framework, right? Where are they involved in developing and operationalizing like processes like hey, we need to figure out when people come to our, our EBC. But anyways, I digress. But but the idea that like those type of things, no Silicon Valley startup, like young company is going to build an EBC. It's just not going to happen. Maybe they're going to do a minimum viable EBC as like a Zoom room, but uh, it's not going to be something huge. The, the, the process, I think, is a pretty common example here is so-called CPQ, configuration, pricing, and quoting. And, and again, we all kind of laugh about this, some of the other CIOs that I know here. You keep outgrowing that process all the time. So when people say, well, we've completed our CPQ project, you know, everybody kind of grins because, well, maybe you've gotten something and kind of flanged together here that's going to work okay for you for the next 12 or 15 months. But guess what? You're going to be doing another CPQ project. I mean, if you're successful and you're growing your business, you're going to have challenges that that process just isn't going to cover. And so, you know, sometimes people just point at the tool and say, oh, the vendor didn't really give us the capability to adapt to all this, these new kind of customers. But more than often, uh, it's the internal way that the process was implemented on the vendor's tool that's got the biggest efficiencies that need to be addressed as the, as the business gets more complex. So what do Silicon Valley companies do wrong? What is incorrect in their approach to IT in your estimation? Gee, that's a great question. Um, they can wait too long to centralize. So I do believe this is based on not just my experience in one company, but talking to many other, other folks here. You pointed this out before, you know, the real small company, they don't 
want, nor do they really need a CIO per se. You know, they need somebody who's a VP of IT that can hand out laptops and keep the Wi-Fi network up and running. And the, the functional teams, they'll have operations groups that'll go out and buy the applications. And you know the, how the movie plays out. The sales guys go by salesforce.com and the finance guys go by NetSuite and HR people by Workday. And more and more and more of those things you know, get implemented within the functional context. And then this may be self-serving, but you know, then I think some founders are sufficiently enlightened to realize we need to centralize the use of our major platforms, like the core business platforms that we have to, as a growth enabler, right? This isn't going this kind of like fragmented um, way of doing IT business is really, it isn't maybe hamstringing the business today, but if we're going to be a billion dollar company, you know, it just can't go on like this anymore. And guess what? The functional leaders are going to have to kind of give up their little toys and tools and bring some, not all, but some of them under the umbrella of a centralized IT organization. And gee, I don't know what the right analogy is, but you know, you're not going to get too many votes, popular votes like, oh yeah, let's create a centralized IT organization. Somebody has, yeah. somebody has to be like enlightened with enough foresight to say that this is an enabler. And there are companies here that will go nameless in this interview, but you know, for the right beverage, I would be more than happy to share them with you that uh, have, <laughs> they've waited too long. You know, and they to get those those to create this this concept of a centralized IT organization now would require way too much change management. Guess what? Way too much reengineering because people have just gotten used to this is the way that we do things here. And of course, internally, everybody <laughs> the, the chaos is kind of reigning, right? I mean, because people can see where some of these deficiencies and bungled handoffs and you know whatnot occur, where, where you know all the gaps exist. But the leaders of the different functions feel like, well, it may be a mess, but it's my mess, you know, and I'm not going to turn it over to settle because then I got to deal with him to get my mess cleaned up. Yeah, that's that's a great point um, that it's like I would just rather waste the energy, the mental energy to just deal with it myself than have to have somebody else, you know, then I got to just go to that person and and they have to figure it out. Whereas I already can, I can self-diagnose pretty well. But the thing is, you can't, you can't, you might be able to self-diagnose, but you can't diagnose what marketing is doing. You can't die. You know what I mean? Like if you're the sales leader, you don't know what HR is doing. Right. So it's like, meanwhile, the, the, the IT leader is like you and marketing and HR and finance have the same problem, all four of you. <laughs> so we need to solve the company-wide problem and then it will in turn solve all of your problems rather than you all trying to like put band-aids uh, on, you know, on something that, that needs a little bit more uh, stability than that. You know, to be a little more constructive, I, you know, I think one way of tackling that problem in a politically correct and constructive way is to think about mapping enterprise-wide data flows. So I don't know how you can possibly, you know, disagree with the importance of doing that. You know, even if you own the Workday platform and I own the NetSuite platform, and if somebody said, like, what does recruit to retire really look like in this company? You know, like we're gonna we're talking about doubling the deploy population in the next 24 months. So like, let's really like look at recruit to retire. Who gets involved? How much, all, all the questions that, you know, and you might find pretty soon, it's not just an HR activity, right? Because I mean, you got an engineering function that's pouring tons of hours into filtering through different candidates and testing candidates and 
you know, trying to source new, new candidates from places that they've never even talked to before. But my, so my point being is the IT function, if you come in and say, hey, you know what, I got to take over a couple of systems here and I can make um, hired or retired 10 times more efficient, two times more efficient than what it is today. That probably is not going to be a compelling argument. But if you come in with some process modelers, you know, and some um, data engineers and say, hey, let's look at what happens from the moment a candidate, you know, opens a job rack on our website to their new employee orientation session. You know, like, what is that whole thing process? How many of our systems do they touch? How do we collect information about them? How are we handling PII? Do we keep them warm if they don't, you know, if we don't have an immediate opening for them, but we're very impressed by their qualifications? And, you know, the list of questions goes on. And, I, and I, so I think this, in the stewardship model, you know, you don't have to own it first to really kind of provide some oversight. I think one of the biggest levers you have is to show up with people who have qualified qualifications to be able to do some of this kind of process mapping and data engineering. So I want to say, let's give the listener, we'll say three takeaways that they could do right now to act more like a Silicon Valley company or a, uh, a to-do IT management in the next decade. I, that was basically one, which is like map your data flows. So uh, the first one's a freebie. You already said it. But I think that that's a great idea. I love the way that you said that um, because it does show if you're if you're mapping the data, it shows all the different organizations that it's going to bump into. Give me some more. What are some other practical takeaways that that people and also everyone should go read the book. We'll link it up in the show notes. Uh, go buy the book and read it. Truth from the Valley. Um, but uh, give us some other nuggets. Um, we touched on one already in this idea of you're you're. As an IT leader, you're really a brand manager, you know, for your organization when it comes to sourcing and recruiting talent. And uh, even internally, you know, companies, IT organizations develop reputations. And if the team is doing innovative things, has, you know, really harmonious working relationships with the business, has a nice work-life balance, you know, word gets out on the street. It gets out through vendors. It gets out through friends of your existing staff members that, hey, this is a pretty cool place to work for, you know, and people kind of... They're there. They're ready to have a conversation. They'll respond to a, you know, a feeler, et cetera. And then others have very different reputations, which makes the whole, you know, recruiting process and sourcing process much more difficult. So I think leaders in particular who are more, more prone to having public exposure through simple things, you know, tweets or uh, postings on LinkedIn or um, you know, maybe presentations they make at local IT meetings, et cetera, you know, those are all important things to do to project a brand, not manufacture one out of thin air, but, you know, to tell your story about why you sh- you are the employer of choice in your area or your industry going forward. I think that's kind of super important. So I'd, I'd stick that up there. Something, that, something that, that we can implement. I want, I want like implementation like tomorrow after listening to this episode. You got a few hours this week because of, uh, you know, the craziness of the virus. Everybody's working from home. You don't got to commute three extra hours this week and you want to make a practical thing right now, a change that can have some impact next quarter. Okay. So here we go. This is another favorite, favorite um, <laughs> a topic that I have, I have quite a bit of passion about that may not fit your category, what you're looking for. And that is to build a security culture. So mm. this, I find this incredibly frustrating, right? So if you look at most modern companies, somewhere squirreled away in a corner of the company, there's a little information security team 
that's supposed to keep the other 99.9% of the employees, you know, protected and company resources protected. And so there's this like tiny little technical team that's supposed to keep everybody out of trouble, keep us all out of trouble. You think, well, that's kind of on the surface of it, kind of crazy, but okay. Then you get into an IT organization where that little InfoSec team resides. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but when they come out of their little cave and they try to enlist help from other members of the IT team to do simple things like, you know, investigate an event or an alert or put a new safeguard, either a new process or a new tool into their existing process or their existing tech stack, you know, the, their own colleagues in IT look at them like three-headed monsters, like, I, I have got a full-time job, you know, like, that's not a priority to me, that, you guys need to worry about that. And all too often, people feel, I'm not going to do anything until they ask me for the third time, because I, I got other more important things to do. So my point being, many, many IT organizations don't even have a security culture of their own, and when you think about it, they should be the shining light of the entire corporation. People should look at IT and say, we should all aspire to be as security conscious as, as IT is. So that's the concept. And now ways to do it, you know, things you can do, are, are some are pretty obvious. I mean, you need to educate your staff about what the real issues are here. What, one form of education that, that I um, emphasize is if you've never really been through a major breach, you really don't understand the impact that it will have. And I've been through a few. And all your IT priorities will become immediately turned upside down in the case of a major breach. No new initiatives will be started. Existing ones will be poor void. Money will flow over and there'll be a, lots of new tools and new people, et cetera, to try to keep everybody happy that this could never happen again. So it will affect you personally, kind of number one. Number two, and this is a simple, simple thing. Wait, really quick. So that's super fascinating. Do you ever do, like, I, I, as you can probably remember from your time in the military where you probably did this, but I know when, when I was in it, like, you would practice, you know, things happening, like a breach oh, yeah. or something like that. Yep. Like, I'm so curious, like, how many, you know, companies are out there actually practicing getting breached? There, no, there are definitely, like, ways of doing that, right? Tabletop exercises can be conducted. You have red teaming. Um, Actually, there's an interesting new startup that now will help take your team through kind of a red team exercise. They'll try to come through different doors and, and you know, look for your vulnerabilities, et cetera. So there's definitely ways you... But I mean, I mean like the, the everyday employee, because that's like the thing. And like, you know, I'm going to ask you a question about like, you know, coronavirus stuff in a little bit. But like, it's it's kind of the same sort of crisis scenario where like, there was everything happening a certain way. And then as soon as that happens, life completely changes and no one is prepared for it, right? And it's like that level of emergency preparedness is just not really, of any organizations that I talk to for the everyday employee is not really that big of a priority. So I'm just, I'm, I'm like, how do you make the everyday employee feel some level of emergency preparedness that we would be prepared for in case of such an event to happen. So again, I'm, I'm really kind of focusing my remarks on the other IT employees, because again, I think they should, you know, they should be exhibiting behaviors that the rest, oh, yeah, good point. The rest of the company should emulate. But you, you know, you started this conversation, this part of the conversation about like, what's the one thing that you can do when you go back to work or, you know, whatever. So I'm going to give your listeners a very simple one that anybody can do. And it doesn't require 
spending money. So I worked with a gentleman once several years ago, and one of the sayings that he had that has stuck with me, he said, uh, anything that interests my boss fascinates me. <laughs> and so if as an IT leader, you simply show interest in security concerns and issues. I mean, I think people don't really understand how influential their behavior is, both on you know, colleagues as well as team members um, and people they supervise. And very simple questions that just show that that's a top of mind issue for you. Like doing it this way, would that somehow get to this PII database, you know? Or, you know, would the auditors, is this gonna be something that would be auditable by the auditors, you know, to make sure that we're, if you just do some gentle probing, just try like three remarks a week, you know, if you're a leader, just, just set up a scorecard, you'd be surprised, you know, right? Because suddenly like your direct reports, if you're asking three and you got three direct reports, they're probably asking 10 collectively, you know, and they're 10, or, it, just, it just communicates to the whole organization. So, so I think that's important. And then the other thing you can do in the short order, and this is gonna sound a little draconian, but um, one, of the, one of the problems I think we have with establishing a security culture, there really aren't consequences for doing stupid things for the most part. What you really need to have are a, a significant and public and well-defined set of penalties that occur when people mishandle, you know, sensitive, confidential, intellectual property, PII data, you know, et cetera. And I'm not saying, you know, you fire people, but you'd like to believe that with human nature, you can just explain to people what they need to do and why they need to do it. But anybody that has a teenage kid knows that you, there has to be some kind of consequences when people don't follow the rules. And I think all too often companies don't have those kind of you know, preordained penalties. And so consequently, when you don't see any action being taken when things go wrong or clear guidelines are being kind of flaunted, then everybody says to themselves, well, they didn't really mean it after all. So, you know, it's really not important. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, I mean, we see the rise of zero trust as a framework. And I think that, you know, I, I, was, I feel like I see trust but verify more often on like LinkedIn and stuff now yep. um, than I ever have before. But I think that that's a great point that it's like they're, they're due have to be consequences for certain things and people need to understand. Um, I, I always thought that, you know, one of the powerful things of, uh, and I, I don't know who's, who said this, but, you know, you need to have uh, examples of what like right looks like and like what makes a hero in your organization. Like, oh, this person, you know, coded for 12 hours straight and, you know, did and made something amazing. Well, it's like, well, if you make that person a hero, then, being a hero means that you code for 12 hours straight. So like you kind of need to figure out, is that something that we want people to do? Um, you know, like what, like what makes someone a hero is super important, but it also by the same token is like what makes someone a villain and, uh, and makes, you know, and making sure that people understand what that was. I always tell the story of, uh, of the like senior leader that plugged their iPhone into, uh, a secret computer when I was in Afghanistan. And, uh, and the security guy blowtorched it in front of the entire uh, entire brigade uh, leadership team. Like, that's not a good feeling to have your uh, iPhone blowtorched in front of like <laughs> you know the entire leadership team. I like that. Um, I like that. I'm going to tell you a story. You know, we're out kind of down this road. I'll tell you a story you might find entertaining. This is many years ago. I was working in a company where we had a number of government contracts, 
And uh, we had purchased equipment uh, using, you know, government money, taxpayer money. And as a consequence, we could be audited spontaneously at any time. Under the kind of contracts that we had, government auditors could come in and, you know, pretty much look at any aspect of our operations. And we had many people that were misusing, you know, IT equipment to gamble and view pornography and, you know, just kind of all the things, gaming, you know, things they shouldn't, should not have been doing. And the senior staff, we begged and pleaded with people to stop this, you know, like and the whole contract would have been in jeopardy if we had um, been audited and some of this behavior had been discovered. And uh, it went on for several weeks and we finally fired one of the culprits. And you, <laughs> the level of activity <laughs> went to near zero after this one individual was fired. Because although we had gone out and begged people to stop misusing these taxpayer paid resources, they didn't see any consequence to their misbehavior. And so they all blithely went on and continued doing what they were doing. And it just took that one you know, termination to get the point across like, no, we mean this, like this does have a consequence. And the whole, the whole phenomenon almost disappeared overnight. It was a remarkable kind of exercise in human behavior. I, I learned a lot through that experience. Yeah, I, people definitely, um, you know, an example is way, you know, you could send a hundred memos, but the one, the one example of the blowtorch is going to get through yeah. or the, or the termination, uh, more than a hundred. You could put the flyers on every computer. You can have stickers on every laptop. You can do all of those things. But at the end of the day, you know, that's not, that's not going to be as memorable. Okay. So before we get out of here, uh, two more questions. So obviously the coronavirus has changed the world in a matter of weeks, you know, pretty much, I mean, I, the entire Bay area is on, uh, is on, you know, work from home status. Uh, it's a sad time. It's crazy. I think people, you know, there's cause for obviously a lot of alarm. There's also a cause for a lot of optimism that, you know, things will get better and there's a lot of smart people working on it. Um, from a business standpoint, as someone who's been a CIO seven times, I'm curious, like, what would be, uh, what would be your message to the team um, in a time of crisis like this? Like, what would be the things that you would want to make sure to tell not only just like your IT organization, but the company broadly about, you know, how to deal with this new working environment? That is a really great question. Um so I think the message to the team has to be a pretty clear statement of priorities because whatever we were working on before, you know, whatever that list of priorities was before has to have changed in some fashion or another. And, you know, frankly, a lot of the aspects of IT operations that have to do with supporting end users are pretty much taken for granted and, you know, supported by a fairly small team of people. And in this kind of a situation with the massive move towards working from home, you know, their, their activities and responsibilities are of paramount importance, right? So just as a kind of productivity enabler for this whole new population of people that have been sent home, you know, their knowledge and is incredibly important, even to the point of where you, maybe you start moving some resources internally around and try to put some people onto the service desk you know, that have never worked with service desk before, just because there's going to be a kind of an avalanche of issues that have to get sorted up there. So I think, you know, that's one message. And I think really you want to echo that to the whole company that, you know, you, obviously we're a service organization. The number one job right now is to, you know, make sure that we don't miss a beat um, and just maintaining existing operations. 
And if we have some major initiatives that are were designed to make things better, well, they were to make things better in like a world that we felt confident at forecasting and projecting. And now we're less confident we can do that. And and I've talked to you know peers at other companies and I've, I've universally, I think a lot of things have been paused or put on hold in that regard. A lot of the plans, you know, all companies go through a, October to December strategic planning exercise to kind of line up initiatives and get their budget sorted out for the next year. And I've talked to many people who said that was really useful. Well, it had some, it had tremendous benefit because we asked ourselves a bunch of what if questions and it was great for teamwork, but now we've pretty much torn all that stuff up and, you know, we're kind of replanning the year. So, so anyway, that's the, maybe the long-term observation. The other thing I wanted to add about this is, I think there's a immediate knee-jerk reaction to boost communication, which is a good thing, but it can be carried to an extreme. And I, I have kind of a developing concern that if there's way too much over-communication, I guess over-communication initially is good, but if you start to do this week after week after week, you're using up a lot of time that people use to get their jobs done. And I've talked to some people already who've said, you know, I'm working harder now than I ever did because my Zoom calls start, you know, at 8.30 or 8 in the morning. They pretty much go on till 4 to 5 in the afternoon. And then I'm like have homework to do. You know, I have stuff. I re- I'm responsible stuff I have to write, emails I have to respond to, presentations that I need to review or, or construct from scratch. Like I'm staying up hours after dinner trying to get the work done that I normally would have done in the office. And so, you know, maybe the shock value of what's happened um, necessitates an overabundance of communication initially, you know, but but I think people are going to have to discover the right balance and really give some time back to people because I'm really not sure that these long work days are a s- sustainable kind of way of doing business. Oh, they're definitely not. Oh, they're definitely not sustainable doing business or sustainable for our psyche. But I, you know, the funny thing is. The old way isn't really sustainable either, right? Like the <laughs> I'm going to commute an hour each way or more for certain, you know, people throughout the country and, you know, fight with traffic and, you know, do all that other stuff. Like th- that way isn't necessarily sustainable either. I think that it's really important for leaders to find balance and figure out how to allow their teams, to your point, to have deep work time. And this is just no matter how you work. And then I think you need to have time for, you know, the water cooler BS time, like to hang out with your, with your colleagues and like be people that talk about life beyond just, you know, the specific work things. And I think being intentional about that stuff. The other thing that we've talked about a little bit uh, on some of other podcasts is this idea of like kind of planning your vacation um, that at some point this will end. And when it does, there is going to be this natural kind of like, you know, global release of like happiness and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it can be fun to plan what that looks like for your team and to plan how you want to uh, do something fun with everyone or whether it's a, you know, change how you do your customer conference a little bit or, you know, whatever that thing is. I think as, as someone who, you know, spent a year in Afghanistan planning vacations for when I got out. Uh, yeah, I can tell you it is a little therapeutic to plan the things that you're going to do when you kind of return to 
uh, a more normal, no, more normal life. And the, and the, and the other piece of that might be just giving people extra time uh, to spend with their families to go, you know, explore the world or do other things. So um, I think that just being purposeful and thoughtful about how you are doing that communication and not, not over communicating, like you said, from a standpoint of taking people's time back, but just uh, focusing on like, you know, checking in with individual people's one-on-ones and saying like, hey, let's do some stuff that actually is, is fun and exciting and, and planned for the future, because there will be a future. It's, it's a good point. This is a real test of the kind of relationship that you have with your team members if you're a leader, because if there's a lot of trust there, you don't need a lot of time, right? I mean, I, I can call you up and say, hey, Ian, you good? I'm good. You know, it's, I don't, we don't need to spend a lot more time than that. Now, if you have a much more formal and distant relationship, you know, with your boss, um, you're going to, if that same conversation could strike fear and terror into their hearts in terms of their job security, like, you know, this guy just calls me, you know, I have, I have like a two minute touch base, you know, conversation that's not satisfying to me at all. And I'm not feeling really like getting a warm fuzzy here about my importance in the group. And you know, the role I'm going to play in the future. So I think it's a huge test of, um, of existing relationships. And then I think the other thing leaders need to do, you need to be pretty sensitive to the personalities of your team members. I've heard the current situation referred to as the holiday for introverts because <laughs> all of the, all the distractions that they, they hate at work, like are suddenly, you know, kind of dissolved. And um, even, even if they're on a zoom call, they can sit there and, you know, uh, mute out their video feed and, and bang away on their, on their <laughs> machines. So, uh, so those people need probably a, to get through to them. You're going to need to put a little, a little spin on the way you, you interact and the way you message. You know, I think it's a logical, logical ending point for this episode because a lot of the, you know, remote only companies, um, and some of those, you know, startups that allow people to work from home multiple days a week or, you know, hey, I, I pick up my kids Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So, you know, I need to stop work at two and then, you know, do whatever it is. Figured out some of that stuff, not all, but a lot of them did. And so, um, you know, a little bit more truth from the valley uh, there. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think I thank everyone for listening. Go check out the book. By the way, as as we're talking here. I have your book, Truth from the Valley, a practical primer on future IT management trends um, up on my computer. And one of the books that it recommends is um, at the bottom of, of Amazon, uh, a book that says, is uh, like, is is your boss an idiot or something like that? And I was, it was, I was laughing at uh, us talking about trying to be a good boss and Amazon recommending a book like, wait a second here. Um, but everyone check out the book, Mark, thanks for coming on. Well, final question here. Our, this is our abbreviated lightning round. Thanks to Salesforce uh, and salesforce.com pl- slash platform. Go check it out. Uh, what's your favorite animal? Dog. They're the best. They're the best. That's it. Mark, any final thoughts? Today is National Puppy Day. There's a final thought. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome. All right. Talk soon. Okay. Take care. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.